If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Romans chapter 3. If you don't, you are free to borrow one of the Bibles, hopefully around you, uh, those black Bibles. You can find Romans chapter 3 on page 940. My family has been cycling through a sore throat and sinus issue sickness this past week. Maybe you can hear it in my voice. As much as it has affected me, it has certainly much more affected my son, who for chunks of time this week has been a functional mute. He's had to revert to sign language in order to communicate with us, uh, even in the smallest things. It was like a bad Lassie remake in our, our house this week. What is it, boy? Is Lou in trouble? Let's go. Get some help. At one point, I, I thought he was informing me that he had joined the Crips, but I was wrong. At another, he, I thought, was signaling me to steal second. I couldn't find second base, so I just took a second helping of dessert and called it good. He finds it very hard, not being able to speak, to ask questions. And that makes up a lot of life. Questions are how we find out new information. They're how we clarify misconceptions, much like what we have before us here this morning. In these eight short verses that we are going to read, Paul lists no less than nine distinct questions. Some are directed at him, others at the dialogue partner, his interlocutor that he is dealing with here. But all are meant to aid our help in understanding the argument that he has laid out up to this point in his letter, which, given that these questions are meant to clarify, would be good to review. I know Josh did some of this last week, but it is necessary, given what we're talking about this morning, to go back and sort of clarify yet again what Paul has argued to this point. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul remarks how the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven because every human being, because of the unrighteousness in their heart, suppresses the truth which they know about God by looking out in the world. That as they look out in the world, his divine nature and eternal power are clearly perceived, and yet they suppress that truth. And by suppressing that truth, they then desire to make gods out of the things that are not God. They exchange the creator for the creature, thinking they are wise they become fools. This is the root that leads to all sorts of bad fruit in us. God hands us over to this delusion. And we commit untold sins because of it. Such an argument is typically left only for the Gentiles, but Paul is at pain to show not only are the Gentiles falling under these categories of idolaters, the Israelites are as well, and certainly the Jews Paul presses this down to us in the second chapter. All are judged by what they have done, not by what they possess. They are judged according to their works, not according to their possession of the law or their circumcision. The law only helps you if you accomplish it. Circumcision only helps you if it is internal, not simply external. The Jews themselves know that their internal compass is off because the very thing the law calls for them to do, they do not do. Even their greatest fall short of the very requirements that the law has placed before us. We have an excellent example of that coming up even today. At the end of all of this, knowing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is assumed, we, we understand that Paul has not gotten us all the way to the gospel yet, but he is writing to Christians. He's writing from a Christian standpoint. He knows that the people who are there know the gospel, even as he's trying to explain it. With the gospel of Jesus being assumed, Paul brings forward these questions to help clarify for us precisely what the nature of our salvation in Christ looks like. Let us turn then to Romans 3 and hear these questions from Paul. 
as we begin reading in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and, and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the inerrant, infallible, and precious word of our God. Let us then clarify the gospel of Jesus this morning by distilling this section down simply to three questions, the first of which is this. If the Jews are no better off, then why care about any of the Old Testament? If the Jews are no better off, why care about any of the Old Testament? The question that Paul launches out with is directly connected to what Paul has already said. If we're all on equal footing, Jew and Gentile alike, what is the benefit of being connected to the Jews? What is the benefit of being in the lineage of the people that God has called to himself? Paul routinely says three times over in the first and second chapter, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why the Jew first? Why mention their priority if everything is equal now, if it doesn't actually matter? These sorts of questions that come up in chapter 3, we should be aware, are going to be repeated and reaffirmed in chapter 9. Many of the questions that come up here and many of the themes that come up here are going to be heard again in chapter 9. So Paul isn't going to give full-blown answers to these things, especially because I think he's aware that he's coming back to them. He does ask the specific question of what advantage do they have? What's the value of circumcision? He says much in every way, but then he only lists one thing. That one thing is a big thing. He says, to begin with, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles simply means the very words of God, according to the NIV and the Holman Standard Bible. Given this context, I think it likely refers to the very promises that God has made. Paul has already explicitly mentioned the law. The word here probably is meant to cover a little bit more ground. He means that God has made great and grand promises to Israel. When we go back to Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we find that when God speaks, he is often speaking in promises. The narrative then shows us how God is fulfilling and keeping those promises, being good and true to his word. The Jews were given these promises. The Israelites were given these promises. The seed of Abraham were given these promises. Now, why in the world would such a thing be important? If Gentiles who have never heard of Moses could be told of Jesus Christ on the streets of Ephesus or in the streets of Crete, not knowing anything about what Moses has written and come to faith in God, come to faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he has done, why is it important and why is this of an advantage to the Jew? Well, for the same reason we treasure the Old Testament. It is God's word and it is incredibly helpful to us. 
And this is not always well understood or believed. Christians have long struggled with this. One of the very first heresies that crept up in the early church was Marcion, who decided that the God of the Old Testament looks starkly different than the God of the New. And so therefore, we just need to kind of shuff off all of the Old Testament. We just need to get rid of it and ignore it because Jesus has shown us a better God. The early church rightly condemned such views. Andy Stanley, who is a teacher, preacher, known well in the Atlanta area, has done much the same with certain differences, important differences. Stanley does indeed recognize that the Old Testament God is our New Testament God. He does not fall into the same sin that Marcion does. But he does believe that it's important that we not only distinguish between the two, but that in his words we unhitch our gospel from the Old Testament, specifically the moral obligations of the Old Testament. This would include the Ten Commandments, which I think is a strikingly odd take, as though God is now kind of okay with murder. Murder, you say? Oh, well, I used to get really worked up about that stuff, but now, eh, just ignore it. Go on your way. And this is not a new idea. It's old and it's new. Why should we care about the Old Testament? Why not simply get rid of it? Stanley thinks that this is actually one of the greatest obstacles to evangelism in our age. Why don't more people come to faith? Because we talk so much about the Old Testament. We're saturated, he says, with the Old Testament. I've heard a lot of people talk about the Old Testament. It's hard for me to believe that we're saturated enough with the Old Testament. Realize that Jesus didn't have to be Jewish. Now, let me clarify. Once the promise is made to Abraham, then Jesus is going to be Jewish because God has locked in that line of history. But if God wanted to incarnate himself... He didn't have to pick the Jewish people. He didn't have to pick Abraham and his kin. Let's assume just for a second that he chose instead some Amazon tribe. And he was going to, at some point in time, somewhere in the history of the world, incarnate himself. And he was going to do miracles and speak words of encouragement, provide morality, speak of God and give them some grasp of theology, remaining with them for three years, enough to annoy some people to kill him. But then he will resurrect from the grave and ascend to the heavens on a cloud. What in the world would we be able to say about that? Would we be able to get from those events themselves the truth of our gospel? Would we be able to say that this man died for our sins so that we might be made right before the God of the universe? What would it be able for us to say he died for us? How would we be able to say that? Why would we know that there is this even idea of sacrifice for them? And, and certainly that blood was needed to be shed for us. Why would a human blood need to be shed for us? Where did that thought come from? Why not simply sacrifice an animal? Well, how would we be able to say that he was God in the flesh? What does it mean for him to be God in the flesh? What God is he? Is he the God of this tribe? Is he the God of that tribe? Is there one God, or are there many gods? How would we get monotheism from this? Specifically, how would we get our trinity from what has happened? Salvation from what? From the other tribes? From every single horrible creature that is waiting to kill you in the Amazon? No Sin, sacrifice, the fact that there is one true and living God. The entire structure of our salvation would be unknown. 
we would lack almost any language at all to describe the good of what Jesus Christ has done for us because the grammar of our gospel is inscribed in the Old Testament. That is where we learn the language of how to speak. It is in the Old Testament that we have the foundation on which the apostles, even being led through by the Spirit, built our understanding of the gospel. Imagine the help this must have been to Jewish believers. The Old Testament is like a big puzzle. They've got pieces and pictures of what's going to happen and, and what they expect to happen and when that's going to happen. And, and the Jews did all this work trying to fit the puzzle together, but they always missed the one key puzzle piece, the very foundational piece, the cornerstone piece of Jesus Christ our Lord. But once that clicks into place, Jewish people can put together an understanding of what's going on very, very quickly. Paul is a wonderful example of this. Dead set against Christianity, he is on his way to Damascus when the Lord Jesus Christ shows up in person before him. He's blind. Three days, Ananias comes and gives him back his sight. The text then tells us that immediately he went to the synagogues and began to preach Jesus. What's more, in verse 22 of that chapter, we read that Paul confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Literally days after he was converted. Gentiles could never have done that. Why could Paul do that? Because he had all the puzzle pieces there. He knew what they all looked like. Once he was given Jesus, everything clicks into place. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly why it is. Gentiles have to catch up on all of that. Having the very words of God is an incredible advantage. Why do we care about the Old Testament? We care about it because we care about the gospel. Second, if the Jews failed to attain the promises, is God unfaithful? If the Jews failed to attain the promises, is God unfaithful? As we look now at verses 3 and 4, he says, what if some of these Jewish people were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? What Paul is indicating is that these promises that were supposed to come were not going to come to those who were going to be cut off because in their not doing the works that they were supposed to do, they were going to be judged under the law as sinners and cut off from the grace of God. If we read through the rest of this passage, it's important to note that many of the words that are going to be found here are likely meant to be treated synonymously. Paul is simply grouping these terms together. So God is known as true and righteous and faithful and good. These are descriptors of who God is. And humans are liars and unrighteous and unfaithful and evil. Given that the words of God mentioned above are related to the great promises of God, the question implies that the judgment of wrath that Paul says is coming on the Jews indicates that those promises have come to naught. But if the promises have come to naught then can God be said to have been unfaithful? God promised them a good land flowing with milk and honey, a land that is resplendent with trees and shrubs, that it is fully watered and capable of supporting just so much life. They were promised to dwell with God, but instead, Paul says, no, you get, you get judgment. Is there unfaithfulness? a way of explaining that God himself and not fulfilling the promises to them unfaithful. 
In a word, Paul says, no. By no means. It's a strong negation. To put this colloquially, Paul's getting very close to saying something like, I know there's not supposed to be any stupid questions, but you're really pressing that conjecture to the breaking point. Paul emphasizes this by saying that even if every man was a liar, even if every man was incapable of knowing or grasping the truth, even if every man, to the fullest extent possible, were to suppress the truth and be a liar, God would still be true to his promises. God would still be faithful and true. What Paul wants to do is to say, even though God will be faithful to his promises, you have to be able to separate that from the reality of your own sin. Our unfaithfulness does not imply God's unfaithfulness, and our lies do not imply God's deceit. To prove his point, Paul turns to David. In Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, we read this from that Old Testament. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is David's confession of his great sin. We read earlier in chapter 2 of the book of Romans, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Out of the three things that Paul really hits on in Romans 2, David falls short of two of them. He steals from Uriah, his bride, and he commits adultery with her. It is a grave and a heinous sin. Go back and read the Psalms. How many times does David complain to God, not about his enemies turning against him, but about those who he considered friends turning heel against him? How many times does he complain that those who had called him friend now treat him as an enemy? And yet here he is, using Uriah's own faithfulness as the very tool that David will use to kill him. The man who complains about faithlessness uses the faithfulness of a man around him in order to seek his own end. It is a horrible and a wicked sin. So it is amazing that David can look up to God and say, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Quite clearly, this is an exaggeration. He has sinned against Bathsheba and he has sinned against Uriah, grievously and heinously, but at the same time. God is the most aggrieved. He is the most injured. He is the most defaced victim in all of this. And David understands that he must realize this. He says, I need to realize this so that David will understand that any judgment that God brings upon him is true and fit and just. He doesn't get to say, listen, God, this is between Uriah and myself. Let him come back and take vengeance on me. This is between Bathsheba and myself. This really is no business of yours. No, he says, my sin is business of yours. Before you have I sinned. And therefore, any judgment that is brought against me is right and true and just. David has no grounds to complain that God is being unfair. Or grounds to say that this shouldn't or doesn't affect God. Such complaints fall deaf. 
David knows this. If the Jews have sinned against God, their inability to maintain the covenant is their own responsibility, and it does not for one second demonstrate that God is unfaithful. Like David, their sin is before God, and it nullifies the covenant. Paul would look at them and say, did you sin? Yes. Then God is not unrighteous or unfaithful to judge you for that sin. It would be helpful, I think, for just a moment then to step back out of the text and to ask a pretty relevant question. What does it mean for God to be faithful? I think a best, one of the best summaries that we can find of this is from Paul's own writing in the book of 2 Timothy where he says the following in chapter 2. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, now what we might expect Paul to say there is, he'll be faith, faithless before us. He will not be faithful to us. If we are faithless to him, if we deny him, he's going to deny us. What we might expect is if we are faithless before him, then he will not be faithful to us. That's not what Paul says. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. God's faithfulness, first and foremost, is true in and of himself. God cannot be faithful as part of his very being. God is faithful in all things. He can't be faithful as there's no one to be faithful to. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are always faithful to one another. As God in one being shares in three or is three persons. And because of that, he is always faithful to himself. The Father is always faithful to be a righteous and a holy Father to the Son. The Son always faithful to be a righteous and a holy Son to the Father. Strict monotheism, whether it's, it's Jewish monotheism or Islamic monotheism, cannot have this. They can't have a God who is faithful from his very being because there was a time when there was not anything else. But the Father has always had the Son to be faithful to, and the Son has always had the Spirit to be faithful to. This aspect of the Trinity is beautiful, and it is wondrous, and it is important. They always are faithful to one another because they share, or they have the exact same identity, they have the exact same will, they have the exact same being. How can they be unfaithful to one another if they share in a will? I'm using that language loosely. They don't share in a will. They have a will together. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are always faithful to one another, and they must always be, for they are unified in their being and will. Let us then return to God's promises, because indeed he does make a promise to Abram. God's faithfulness is true, but it is only necessary when he has hitched himself to a promise, when he has told somebody like Abram, I will be a blessing to you. So when he does that, he must uphold that word, and ultimately he does so. God, in your sin, owes you nothing. He is not obligated to be faithful to any one person in this room. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no obligation of God to be faithful to you, to give you what you think a faithful God would give you, to give you breath, to give you life, 
to give you another second to live and to sin before him by. He requires, he is required to do none of that for you. And punishing you for your sin is righteous and true. But still, there is this promise to Abraham and his seed. Were these promises not unilateral? Did God not say, I will give this to you without requiring anything out of Abraham? It is true. Does God need to be good to those promises? Yes, he does, and he is in Christ. The promise was always to Abraham's seed. It wasn't always to all of his children, but to his seed. And throughout the Old Testament, even in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, all the way through there we find that that image of seed is always located on the one. It is always drilling down into one person, always expecting one to come who would be the Christ. As the Son of God takes on flesh, he becomes Israel incarnate. He is the embodiment of Israel, the inheritor of the promise, being the very Son of God. Therefore, as the Son of God has taken on the flesh of Israel, God the Father will always be true to him and always give him everything that has been promised to him. This is precisely why the new covenant can't be broken. In Jeremiah 31, 31, we read just two weeks ago, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. They broke the covenant because they were sinful. This covenant cannot be broken because it is the eternal covenant between father and son. It can never be broken because God can never be unfaithful to himself. And as the Son has clothed himself as Israel embodied, he will always be faithful to that Son. Therefore, we get to enter into that. By faith, God has promised to always be faithful to us, not because of who we are, but because being found in Christ, he is always going to be faithful to his Son. He will always do what is right by his Son. He will always be good to his Son. He will always be righteous before his Son. We who are in Christ enter into that very certain faithfulness of God himself. God is always faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That brings us to the third question. If the Jews' sin displays God's glory, why not just keep sinning? If the Jews' sin displays God's glory, why not just keep sinning? Verses 5 to 8. Up to this point, I think, You're probably right in thinking that Paul has some sort of generic picture of a Jewish objector, perhaps even himself before he's converted, as he's thinking through these sorts of objections. Maybe these were the same kind of objections that that he had for Christians before. I don't know that. But things change here. These are not just supposed objections, but these are very real objections that people have brought against Paul. He says, they have slanderously charged us with this. Their condemnation is just. What they're saying is simply this. As Paul has already made out, God's glory is the chief thing. God's glory is the way in which we sin against him by not living up to that glory, by not seeing and witnessing to that glory, by not giving God the glory that he is due. We look out in the world and we ought to know, without suppressing the truth, we ought to know that there is a God who is great and glorious and he is worthy of all of that glory. But yet our sin inverts the world. 
God was to be above man and man was to be above creature. But in our sin, we put God on the bottom of that rung, thinking that God owes us and is under obligation to us and instead extol the creature as God as we make images out of beasts and fish. This removal of God from the pinnacle makes us look at creation And by looking at creation and thinking that these things are our gods, in our idolatry, we do not see the glory of God. But God demonstrates his true glory through both judgment and salvation. And in judgment, he shows that our gods are not truly God. He says, you think that this calf, this golden statue that you have made, these little trinkets that you worship, you think that these are your gods. You think that these have glory. They have no glory. I will show you glory. And in his judgment of them, he shows them how wrong they were. In Exodus 9, in the middle of the ten plagues, God, through Moses, speaks. And speaking to Pharaoh, he says, By now, I could have put out my hand and struck your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. I I could have just wiped you guys out. I could have eliminated you with a blink of my eye, but I didn't. I stopped my plagues. Why did I stop my plagues? Simply to bring more on you. He says this, For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God came down to judge Egypt to show that Egypt's gods were no gods at all, that he alone was the true God. In judgment, he shows us what his true glory is, and in our salvation, all the more he shows us what his true glory is. As the veil is lifted, our sin is removed, and we can see the glory of God for what it is. We know truly who God is. Outside of any work that we do, anything that we deserve, God simply by grace and mercy shows us who he is. You can almost hear the complaint of the Jews. And you can side with it. You can understand it. Say, Paul, man, we we know the law of God. And we pursue the law of God. We have heard God say, these are the things you ought to do, and we zealously go after them. We want to be right and true before God. We want to do everything that he has commanded us. And we stretch and we strain ourselves to do these things. And you're telling us that these Gentiles out there who know nothing of you, who care nothing of you, who didn't know God and had no hope in the world, didn't know your law, didn't care to keep you, you're telling us they, they can be saved just like us. You're telling us that God has given us these commands and our working and our straining and our stretching for it is worthless. Why then strain at all? Why not just stop worrying about it? Why not just give it up and instead just be as sinful as possible? If God shows his glory through salvation that way, why not just be as sinful as possible and allow for God's grace to be magnified in saving wretched sinners like us? You know, it's not a bad objection. The devil isn't stupid enough to give you full lies. Rarely does he do that. He loves half lies, though. His point is always to twist the truth just enough for us to reject what is true and to lie just enough for us to believe what is false. 
Paul says that such thinking is damnable. And he's right. Listen, where this complaint gets it right is that it is all about grace. They are absolutely true, absolutely right in saying that the Gentile who knew nothing about God, who had never heard the name of Yahweh, who knows nothing of his great works in Moses and in David and in Joshua and in Caleb, who knows nothing about the commands that God has given, knows nothing about the covenants that he has made, who knows nothing about the puzzle pieces that we have talked about, he can be saved just as easily as the Jew who has spent every day of his life straining and stretching to make himself right in the law. Because it's all about grace. It is all freely given. It does not matter the work that you have done. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter how far you stray. There is grace. Absolutely and positively, they are right there. But they are also wrong. You see, these people and those who argue this way, and these are not just Jewish people who do this, Jude will talk later about the idea that he wanted to write about this common salvation, but, but people are perverting the grace of God into licentiousness, thinking that the grace of God meant that we can just go on sinning and living however we would want. It's not just a Jewish objection. There's a true problem with the gospel for many here. Many people understand that Jesus' death is there to secure forgiveness but they don't understand that his resurrection is there to secure fullness. They simply don't understand how good, how terribly good Jesus is. If you were to drive home today and get in a car accident and break your leg, the doctor comes to you and says, listen, your leg's broken in three or four places. I've got good news. I can fix the pain in your leg, but your, your leg is, is never going to be healed. It will always and permanently be broken, and there's nothing that I or anyone else can do for you. That's a decent deal. And let's assume that he is telling the truth. It is, it is still but a half a truth. While the physical pain might be removed, the sorrow and the longing for what you will never have back always be present. You'll never walk again. You'll never run again. For those of you who are so given over to it, you'll never dance again. The brokenness of your leg will always be a problem. In essence, it will remove the pain that he will rob you of what is good. This is what forgiveness is like without new creation. It takes away pain, and that's good. It takes away the pain of your sin. It takes away the pain of the penalty. Jesus does indeed take that on himself and remove it from you. But he is a better physician than that. He doesn't just want to remove pain from you. He wants to fix the leg. He will indeed remove pain, just as he has removed sin as far as the east is from the west but he will also heal the leg so that you can walk in peace, so that you can run with joy, and you can, if you are given to it, dance in celebration, so that you will know what it means to truly and fully be human. Friends, this is the same hope that is given to us in the gospel. 
as sweet as forgiveness is. And it is indeed sweet. It is a blessing of God. It is the one who is blessed, who knows that he has been forgiven for his sins. It is indeed, indeed an incredibly sweet thing. Jesus holds out to us something that is even better than that. He's not just good to forgive us our sin and to leave us broken and fallen as a sinner. He doesn't just want us to limp through life. He is good enough to heal us fully. Do not sin so that grace might abound, but rather grace abounds so that we might not sin. Friends, this is simply the offer of the gospel. Jesus was not sent simply to be another lamb for another year. He was not sent simply to allow God's wrath to pass over you without taking away from you the very source and reason for that wrath. Jesus did not want to leave you broken and limp in your sin. Rather, he wants to give you fullness of life, joy, everlasting peace, comfort, goodness, and wholeness. These things are not achieved by forgiveness alone but through a very remaking of the people of God in the image of Christ, of a new creation, where the love of God is not placed as a thing to be grasped, but rather is etched on our hearts as a reality to be lived. And here is the beautiful thing. Grace is still present. No matter what state you're in, no matter how you're doing, no matter what you've been pursuing, no matter where your heart is pointing, no matter what sin envelops you, Christ is kind and merciful to forgive you. Call out to him. He is also good and powerful to remake you. Trust in him today. Come to the good physician to heal you fully and forever. For in this, God's glory is truly magnified in Christ. Let us pray. Our Lord and Savior, what an amazing good you have promised to us. What amazing grace has been afforded for us, not just that you would forgive sins, and what a blessing that forgiveness is, but it's not just that you would forgive us, but you promised to heal us as well, to give us the good of a new heart and mind that we might love God and neighbor and experience true flourishing in this world. We rightly confess our shortcomings, our failures, and our sins but we do so with the hearty expectation that not only will you forgive them by the blood of Jesus Christ, but that you would give us hearts that long for your holiness and righteousness. Do so for us today. Clean us and make us pure. Give us faith to secure such promises and show yourself mighty to save. We pray these things for your glory and for our good. Amen. If you would, stand and sing as we sing our song of response, Facing a Task Unfinished.